Hey everyone, uh, welcome to episode 10 uh, of DevOps Squared. We've made it to double digits, which is fantastic. And uh, the, the listeners, um, thank you again. Uh, I said thank you a few weeks ago, but the, the numbers are still going north in the right direction. And there's lots of people seem to be getting quite a lot of value from the stuff that I'm talking about with guests, which is absolutely fantastic. So again, thank you very much. So this week, uh, episode 10, if you remember last week, uh, I was talking uh, with Nick about large organisations that do DevOps, and I uh, quite boldly said that there, in my mind, there are only a few big organisations in technology that actually get this right: uh, Google, Amazon, and, and Microsoft. So um, with, with that, and uh, probably quite fortuitously, um, in some ways, uh, this week for episode ten, uh, I'm joined by April Edwards, who's the A senior software engineer with Microsoft, and we are going to be talking exactly about that. So how Microsoft do DevOps, how it's come about, and we're going to go on to uh, various different subjects and, and conversations on there. So before we get into the questions uh, and the discussion that we've we've got lined up for this one. Um, why don't you just give us a quick intro, April, to yourself, a little bit about your career and uh, how how you actually come to work at Microsoft. Cool. Thank you, Martin. Um, so, yeah, I'm April. Um, I joined, I've been at Microsoft, gosh, uh, two and a half years now. And I actually came up uh, through working at different uh, managed service providers here in the UK, but also in the US. Um, I, I kind of transitioned into cloud back in 2011, 2012, really 2011. Um, I was working for a big company in the U.S. We had some major outages and I was working a lot. I was working 36 hours in a row, um, you know, everything from storage outages to, you know, you name it in our environments. And we started looking at a migration to what was called at the time Office 365. And I was really, really nervous. I thought I'm going to be out of a job. Um, oh, for going to the cloud, there'll be nothing left for me to manage and le- nothing left for me to do. Uh, but I stopped getting calls at 3 a.m. And I really started enjoying that. And then when I moved over to the UK, um, I worked for some MSPs and I was doing a lot in data center transformation. And then customers were really going, well, we want to go this public cloud. You know, we want to know more about it. Do we look at AWS? Do we look at Google? Do we look at Azure? What do we, what do we do? And I was in a position to be more multi-cloud functional at the time. Um, and I really stuck to Azure. I've worked in the Microsoft product stack for over 20 years in my IT career. And um, I joined Microsoft as an app dev specialist. Um, so basically technical pre-sales in the app dev space, transforming customers' environments. And then uh, last October, I joined the uh, commercial software engineering team as a senior software engineer. So I've moved from ops into dev. So I've absolutely seen both sides of the fence and I've lived and breathed it. So it's been a really cool journey. Yeah, cool. That's... That's, that's really interesting because, I, I mean, certainly from my experience, so I, I've done both ops and dev as well, uh, and uh, I don't know if you agree with this, but I, I actually think there's very few people that have done both. Um, there's certainly less people that have done um, dev and then ops. No, mm-hmm. more people have done ops and then dev. So, do you, you know, do you think that puts you in a better position to understand DevOps and a better position to, you know, just make it all fall into place in your head and just get on with what needs to be done? I think if you, you're down in the trenches and you work your way up in IT and kind of really in any industry, you really understand how something works from the bottom up. And I would say absolutely. I mean, I... I, I do know some devs that go into ops, not many. You really don't. You know, they're kind of devs and they stay dev. They may 
grow their career and go into management, but no one just says, hey, I'm just going to go work in ops one day. Um, for me, it was getting bored with virtual machines, and, and I had to understand application stacks, but I was like, I want to see the code. I want to make this work, and I want to see how this transforms to the end user experience. And it was my interest getting deeper and deeper into the stack, and I absolutely have seen it from the outside. I feel the pain points. So when I go and work with customers, I work with both sides of the teams. And when we talk about DevOps, we need to break down those silos. So I get the pain points having lived and breathed it for most of my IT career. And now being in it and, and working with customers that are fighting the same battle, absolutely. Like, I, I understand it. I have empathy. You know, when I had a dev team, they didn't want to talk to us. We didn't want to talk to them. And But we wanted our work done. And and having done that and then trying to have deliver software to to your company and, and for the end users, like it's, it's a stressful experience. And then there's just a blame game when things go wrong. And I've lived in that blame game um, and, you know, things can go better. So when I really started getting to, you know, it actually started with me for automation and infrastructure as code. Like that was my first like getting my, you know, getting my teeth into something more. Um I understood the pain points of an ops team trying to transform, and I understood the, the pain points of a dev team to try to get their resources better um, and, and to get them faster and more agile. And then trying to get an ops team to operate like that um, was really difficult. So, yeah, I think it's it's really what's driven me into DevOps is having seen both sides of the fence in my, and grow up in that, growing through that in my career. Mm. Yeah, good. So, as, and that's it. I think you're the first one. I'm just trying to think back as I'm talking, which is never a good idea, but um, I, I think you're actually one of the first people we've had on where they, they can talk about that progression and that journey. Mm -hmm. So you know, lots of people we've had have been in, in management and understand it from that perspective. So we talk about value proposition, DevOps and that kind of thing. It's, it's really good to um, understand that. And uh, lots of people have been developers uh, mm -hmm. and DevOps, I think, just comes naturally to, to them because, it, you know, let's face it, most of it is based around the dev side of the whole stack. But yeah, very, very, very few. And I'm, I'm actually one of the people that has done dev and then ops, mm -hmm. <laughs> oddly. Um, um, a long story as to how it comes about, but yeah, I actually did dev and then went to, to ops and then, you know, a bit, bit of hybrid, I guess, at, at the minute. And it is, it is very interesting. I completely agree. You have, I think you find you have a lot more empathy with what people are going through on both sides. You know, you, you understand what happens in ops when devs just, you know, <laughs> throw stuff over the There's fence. Throw stuff over the fence you know, every time. And you understand why developers are doing that to a certain extent because of how they're driven and what they need to do. And obviously, you know, born out of that was, uh, was DevOps to try and fix some of those things. Um, so, so with that, what does, I mean, this is it's kind of a bit of a, a, a two-part question, really. So what does DevOps mean to you is the, the first bit, uh, which is what I've been asking everyone. And has your opinion of DevOps evolved over your career? Absolutely. I mean, it's a tough one. If, if you go in front of 30 people, and as you know, on this podcast, every person you spoke to you probably has given a very different answer of what DevOps yeah. is. And it's always been something that I found really, really hard to define. And I'm like, well, we just want the teams to work together and everyone wants to deliver a product, right? That's what we need to do. Um, and that was kind of my thinking of it, is getting people to work together, breaking down silos and and, and being cross-platform. And, mm. you know, 
I like the word cross platform because because my career has transitioned and saying, well, I'm cross platform. I'm not just this person. I can also do this. I'm quite agile in, in my technical skill set. Like, I think that's really cool. So there's a lot of words we can kind of put in. And actually, we do have a definition of DevOps at Microsoft. It was written by a colleague of mine, Donovan Brown. And we define DevOps as the the union of the of people, process and products to enable continuous delivery of value to our end users. And when we go and um, work within Microsoft, like that's the definition we use. That's how we think about our products. And when I go speak to customers, that's what I'm trying to drive to them as well. So it's a union of three things, the people, the products and the process um, and delivering that value. And that value is the key word. Like what is the value you're driving? Um, and, it, and it's kind of people are still seeing DevOps as a theory. Um, and actually, one of the things we we kind of automatically bring in is bring in statistical facts. We use um, some door stats we have um, of, you know, what kind of recovery times that our, our high performing DevOps customers are using, how fast they can deploy code, how fast they can recover, um, less in- incidences, et cetera, and, and what this life cycle looks like. So um, DevOps is, is definitely the union of all that. And I think after hearing that and having worked with it, it really started to make sense with me and solidify in my head as well. And I think it starts to really solidify in our customers' heads as well when we, we work with them on it. Yeah, definitely. And I, I actually really like that explanation as well. I, I use that after I saw it. I can't remember when I saw it on his blog a long time mm-hmm. ago. And uh, it, it was one of those things that I read you know, quite early in my DevOps journey slash career, I guess. Uh, and you know when you read it and think, hmm, I'm not really sure I get that and then all mm-hmm. of a sudden one day it's just like yes <laughs> I completely yeah. get it and, and I love the terminology that's used in that statement actually because the wedding's very careful not to be very specific uh, and I've actually um, I've actually used it in my uh, previous role with uh, Virgin Atlantic as well when I went to go talk to non-technical teams about mm-hmm. how we could use you know some things like agile working and stuff to improve mm-hmm. how they were working um, I used the same statement <laughs> and, and, you know, there was a room full of non-technical people, sometimes procurement, sometimes finance, who were like, oh, yeah, yeah, that makes a lot of sense because everyone has their own understanding of what those key terms mean, like end users and value. Because even yeah. in the same organisation, between teams, your value is often different, right? Depend- yeah. In the same with engineering teams, it's often different. Um, so, yeah, I, I really like that one uh, as well. And... So, you know, if I'd have asked you the same question, say, two to three years ago, do you think you'd have said the same thing or do you think you'd have said something different? Oh, absolutely not. I think it would have been very different. I think when you've been in the trenches of pain and everything hurts, like everything hurts, you're like, what can I do to make this, you know, can I make this go away? What can I do to make this better in, in, in my working environment, in my bubble? And you're thinking, what tool can I use? Like, there's got to be a tool, like something's got to fix it. Maybe we go buy a new device or more hardware or we buy an application and this application will make everything better. And it doesn't. And so many times in IT organizations, we, we throw more stuff at a problem to see what sticks. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, you know, and a lot of times we work with customers like, well, how do I get there? Like, what tools do I use? And they want the magic fix. And it's I think the biggest takeaway I've had for me is that it's a process. Um, and we kind of divide it up into phases in a process when we talk to customers. And, and again, this can be to your your technical teams or your C-levels. And it's. It's, you know, we, we kind of plan, we deploy, uh, and then we start testing, and then we monitor. And the monitoring is the key thing. 
and getting that feedback is absolutely critical. And that's not something I thought about before. But, you know, with so many great third party tools out there, whether you're working on premise or in the cloud, you can you can monitor every single thing you do and then you can react to it and make it better next time. So some people think big bang approach, but DevOps is a continuous process that never, ever ends. Um, And that's something to keep in mind. I mean, you're you know, the, the market changes and, you know, the examples I use, you talk about not many big companies have DevOps, right? There are actually quite a few. Um, one of my biggest and best examples is, is, is you know, Uber. Mm-hmm. Think of what Uber delivers. Um, look at, you know, especially here in the UK, the London taxi service, and they're getting hit with the success of Uber because it's easy. I can go, you know, go to my phone, request a ride. Here I am. Here's my pin drop. I can pay mm-hmm. online. I don't have to do cash. I don't have to like screw around with what the driver's, you know, going to, you know, trying to harass me for, you know, X amount of pounds. I've had it before where I live. I went to catch a taxi to the airport because I was running an errand. I was like, I'm in town. I'll just catch a taxi and I'll support the local economy. The guy's like 45 pounds. I'm like, no way. And I got out of the taxi and he wouldn't let me out. And I was like, no, you're going to let me out of here. I'm like, Uber charges me 15 pounds. I said, I, I take a taxi to the airport like every week. It's 15 pounds. And it was a massive argument. But but these companies are scared of that. Uber is great example then you look at like dominoes you know think about blockbuster um Mm -hmm. what happened to them netflix has come in and delivered a value to all of us now especially in lockdown any company that was already set up to to embrace this world of devops and to to be able to just be very agile in a time when everyone's home and to scale they're doing really really well now everyone else is playing catch up and going now we got to do something because our, our competition has just kicked us in the butt, you know, and and I think there are a lot of companies doing it, but it's you don't always think about it. You know, it's now these household names, you know, Netflix and chill and mm-hmm. let's go get an Uber. You know, it's never just a taxi anymore. Um, and the companies that are can be most agile and are embracing it are doing really well. And it, it makes a massive difference and becomes kind of our day to day. But we just don't think about what they're doing differently sometimes. And, you know, so as an organization, you have to think my competition's already doing it, you know, that's mm. why they have an edge of the game. So it's, um, we definitely look at the bigger name players, but there's definitely some smaller, more medium sized companies that are also doing really well at it. Um, and you just have to remember the up and comings as well. Um, we see a lot of customer, uh, a lot of companies that are definitely smaller, but making a big difference and hitting the industry really well. And that, that's why they're super agile and they go in with a DevOps mindset from day one. I, I actually, completely agree with you know everything you just said there and i was talking about this last week as well and one of the questions that i said was you know if an organization is already set up for devops and i working at the minute will they recover faster or recover better um after covid19 you know hopefully passes mm-hmm. and you know i i, I the, my way of thinking on this was around you know, people like your Uber, Deliveroo, to see all of these places that, you know, where one's really, really small and once operated in yeah. one city with three or four people, they set up how they're set up and they've, they've managed to scale their operation to be almost enterprise level because they started off exactly, you know, how they operate today, but obviously better from all of the, mm-hmm you know, metrics that they've put in place and all of the learnings that they've taken along the way. And I think, generally speaking, that's the biggest advantage all of those organisations have over, you know, big monolithic enterprises that have decades of process to unpick. 
Mm-hmm. And, you know, they, they absolutely, those organisations absolutely have pockets of teams that do this very well. Um, and on the inside, they can talk about how they do DevOps really well. But I think, you know, it's much more difficult for them to portray that to the outside world because, you know, they just see massive organisation that's been around for 60 years plus sometimes. And, you know, how can they possibly be any good at doing this kind of stuff because they employ hundreds of thousands of people? But, you know, I, I certainly from my experience of working with, you know, Microsoft through, you know, Steve Ballmer's last years into Satya's term and to now, you know, they are, you know, and everyone I know that works for Microsoft is like a different person in the past mm-hmm. five years. Oh, absolutely. You know, they, they, they are so passionate people to work there. That, and that's one of the key things around DevOps is that people don't think about when talk about culture, right? And, I, I think that is the biggest culture thing that I've seen at Microsoft is everyone loves working there and Microsoft has once again become a cool place to work. Um, so, you know, with, with that thought in mind, how, how has a company like Microsoft size, you know, clearly over years of work, it obviously doesn't happen overnight, but over, you know, a long period of time, how have they managed to turn that around and transform and, you know, work to this DevOps culture that clearly now comes through in the people and products that are released. It's it's a great story. And I think it's, um, have you ever read the book um, Hit Refresh by, by Satya, actually? Yes, I have, yeah, yeah. Not long ago, actually. It's, it's a great book. So take, you know, for anyone that is, I think, especially during the lockdown, having hitting that wall or been, you know, made redundant or put on furlough and is having a rough time is actually a great read because it talks about the growth mindset, right? Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I, I, to start, Microsoft's a, a software company, right? And we, you know, we had big dreams and we've grown, we've grown, we've grown, but then how do you do that to scale? Satya came in as an engineer or had, uh, you know, his his background is, is an, ad, 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 an engineer. He got it. And he came in with this growth mindset and spread that to the entire company and change the way we were going to work. And to be completely honest, we from day one had the executive buy-in from Satya. So we had the top-down buy-in and that's crucial in an organization. Um, I work with a lot of teams where the developers are brilliant people and we can do some great things and show the executives to get buy-in and there's different ways to get it. But Satya came in and said, no, we're going to have this growth mindset. We're going to change things. Um, and there's some great quotes in the book that I took and I, I read the book before I joined Microsoft. Um, I was working in, in, you know, in Azure. I loved how fast the platform was growing. Now, most people that work in Azure or a lot of the products go, they change so quickly. Absolutely. So um, I'll use one product that we that I talk about a lot. Now, if you think back to and if it doesn't matter if your ops background or have a dev background, you think back to the server technologies. Um, I'm not going to go back before server 2000 because I don't want to date myself. So server 2000, <laughs> server 2003, 2008, 2012, 2016, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. We had a life cycle of Windows Server versions. Um, I like talking about Team Foundation Server. So, Martin, are you familiar with Team Foundation? Hey, I am familiar with TFS. Absolutely. Yes. So I have this great graphic where I show Team Foundation Server. You know, it initiated in 2005. I think the next release was 2008. Um, TFS turned into VSTS, and it's now Azure DevOps. But we started at a three-year release cycle with Team Foundation Server. So we had this buy-in from the top, and Satya came in and said, 
guys, we're going to eat our own, you know, we're going to eat our own dog food here. We're going to use our own products and we need to make them better for the customer experience. And he forced that into us. And I would absolutely say the, tra- the, the, the transformation of Microsoft products has evolved massively in the past, you know, five to 10 years. And especially with the enablement of cloud. So Team Foundation Serve is one I talk about a lot because we were on a three-month um, cycle of, of how we deployed updates to T- TFS. It was an on-prem product. We moved it to a cloud-based product. So when we put it to, as a cloud-based product, we then had to kind of transition our own process, our tooling, and our people to embrace that. So TFS, you know, we we were going from a three-year. Um, three we went into a three-month deployment cycle with it, um, and now we're at a three-week cycle. So for those of you that use Azure DevOps quite frequently, uh, whether you use Azure DevOps server on-prem or in the cloud, um, more so on the cloud side, you're, you're going to see changes to the platform quite a bit. And some people go, they'll log in and go, okay, where'd that go? Somebody moved it or they added a new feature. But we're on a three-week life cycle on that. And um, a, lot, a lot of companies you know, want to know, well, how'd you get to that three-week cycle? How'd you get to that three-week sprint process? Now, we had to kind of start embracing our own, you know, Lifecycle, we had a lot of technical debt to sort out and a lot of organizations do. So we had to address that. We had to address how our teams were set up um, and the culture. So Satya came in and brought that culture. So that came in from the top down. Um, we had to address our own tooling. So we had to start using our own tools. We had to address that technical debt. Um, and we had to change how our teams work together. And I'll get on kind of like the team side in a minute. But in terms of the tooling side, you know, we found this this three-week sprint process by uh, we call it the Goldilocks principle. So we want to obviously do better than every three months on a release. Um, so we started testing out a four-week cycle. And in that four-week cycle, it was just kind of too much time between sprints. So we kind of get done stuff and go, okay, what's next? Um, and then we moved to a two-week cycle, and that was way, way too fast. And we were just having way too much backlog and too much technical de- debt built up. So we, we we found that kind of three weeks. So that's how those teams found that was kind of really by trial and error. And, and in DevOps, you have to be okay with that. And we use the phrase fail fast. You do. You need to fail fast and go, right, we've tried this. Doesn't work. What's the next thing we want to try? And that's part of that cyclical nature of it. And that's really, really important. Um, so, yeah, we, we use these three-week cycles. So when we release our products, um, we release them to everyone internally. So when Sachi said we're going to eat our own dog food, he wasn't lying. Um, so I <laughs> I get features all the time. Um, so I get um, when I log into the Azure portal, I have a preview portal. So I get all the new features there, um, even on my Windows desktop which has been a little less than reliable lately, but that's because of the hardware I'm on. So I've sorted that one, but we, we do everything in rings. So ring zero will be the immediate team or within those teams and ring one might be internal employees, et cetera. And I think we go up to ring, it's either eight or nine. I can't remember off the top of my head, but we then deploy out to the world in those rings. So we deploy internally and spread our rings out. And once it's successful, get that feedback. We do active feedback mechanisms. Um, and then we start, processing out those those deployments. So it's it's been a really, really beneficial mechanism for us. Um, and it's tough for people that are having to do a day job and keeping track of all the changes in Azure, keeping track of all the changes in, in Azure DevOps. And it is, but you know, when, when I work with people and they're like, oh God, we're automating them out of a job. That's probably people's biggest fear. And I had that fear. I get it. I was like, mm-hmm. what am I going to do if we're automating our exchange server <laughs> and everything else in our environment? Uh, trust me, I slept. <laughs> it was great. Um, but then you learn to automate and, and we need people to automate. We still have hardware we have to maintain. We still have networking. We still have storage and, and the story's changed a bit, but this automation piece, we need people to execute that. 
And um, so when I talk to customers that are really nervous about it, it's like, well, we, we need you. It grows your skill set. So it's really tough to have a day job to feed and water an environment, um, whether it be your code or, or, you know, an infrastructure environment and learn these new things. But it, it helps you evolve your skills as well. Um, and it'll keep you fresh in the industry. But yeah, so, I mean, we we really had to look at how we were deploying our products and and fix that. That was a massive thing we had to do. Um, and we had to change the way our teams were set up as well. Hmm. I really like, so So one of the things that I get asked all the time is, um, how, how long should my sprint cycle be? And um, I wrote I wrote down, this was right now, some notes, I wrote down trial and error in three weeks. And I, I think, I don't know if you see this, but certainly when I go see clients and stuff, one of the biggest things they always say, everyone will always say, we want to do two-week sprints because that's what books, that's what the articles say. It's in a textbook somewhere. It's in a book, right? Some, someone, someone of authority on the subject said it somewhere, so that's what you must do. And yeah, I think one, one of the very first things I'll generally say to clients is, look, this is, this is going to be quite a big journey of, you know, I don't think of me telling you what to do, but more, you know, trying to address some misconceptions of what, you know, how you understand. I said, you know, the very first thing you need to understand about DevOps is one of the methodologies about having a growth mindset and um, implementing DevOps in your organization is you have to be willing to fail fast, you know, like mm-hmm. you said. And if that means that your sprint cycle is three weeks, four weeks, five weeks, six weeks, then so be it. That doesn't make you any better or worse than even a competitive organization doing fundamentally the same thing. You know, if it works for you and works for your environment and works for your products and you get qualitative stuff out there in, in the fastest possible way, then you, you know, you are doing what you need to be doing. You know, try not to worry about everyone else. But like you say, just assume they're already doing it. And I, I think people will often try and get um, too hung up on the mechanics of what they've read in books and what they've read yes. in articles and say, well, no, we need to do it like this. So I think it's really good that, you know, especially in organizations as big as Microsoft, you can, you know, you can go to people and say, well, actually, you know, we, we didn't do two weeks because we ended up with too much technical debt. Uh, and that'll start to really resonate with people. Uh, and I think, that, you know, that's one of the other things I really like about Microsoft now is that level of honesty that people bring into the conversation. Um, uh, you know, especially in the cloud advocacy space and solution mm-hmm. architecture, you know, I, I know some solution architects that will, you know, be with a conversation with a customer and they might have a day where they don't talk about Microsoft products because that's part of what they do. Yeah. Uh, and, uh, you know, there is no longer this attitude of you must use Microsoft products <laughs> to do everything yeah. you ever want to do. If there's no. something better, then use it. Exactly. And when I go work with, when, when I, we as CSE goes and work with these large scale customers, we have to find the right tool for the job. Mm-hmm. Um, we like using our own products, but it doesn't always happen that way. Um, and it, it's really tough going and talking to customers about DevOps because they, they want to achieve that gold standard of two weeks. And you're like, well, that doesn't always work. And you need, I think the biggest thing you have to focus on are metrics and numbers. Um, so when a customer talks, starts speaking to us about, um, how do we get there? How do we start finding that Goldilocks place that you guys found? You need metrics and we're continuously evolving. So for us in our deployments, we would have massive backlogs and, and a massive amount of technical debt from bug fixes. And you have to think about most teams, um, how they're kind of configured today. Your devs are there to fix bugs, right? Mm-hmm. And they're, they're pushed to deploy features. 
your ops teams are going to be, um, I say the word judged, but um, bonused or incentivized mm-hmm. by keeping the lights on 24 by 7 by 365, right? Mm-hmm. So these two things fight all the time. So you have to be willing to take that step in and, and get real hard metrics. So when you are deploying, you know, how, you know what kind of tests are you running against your code? I mean, one thing Microsoft did is when we were deploying um, our code previously, we, we started off running about 27,000 tests, uh, functional tests. They were either automated or manual um, on each of those deployment cycles. We now um, deploy about 65,000 unit tests against every single PR that we deploy, and that takes about seven minutes to run those those tests into each PR. So we really had to refine it, but we had to change the way our testing evolved, and we had to get the teams to really work together. And and then having these metrics after we deploy and saying, right, what does our infrastructure look like? What are the, you know, how is the dev team performing? And I think this is a really difficult place to go because you, you want quality, not quantity, right? Yeah. So I have worked with customers that are like, well, how do you measure that? That, that's hard. That is mm-hmm. that is a hard thing to measure. And a, an organization goes, well, I want to measure how much time they're spending on, the, on their code. I'm like, that's quantity. Take that away. Like, just rip it out. Mm-hmm. What quality are they delivering? You know, what does your backlog look like? And, and, and there are so many tools and metrics available. So, yes, Azure DevOps pulls a lot of this out and we can get that data, you know, from our pipelines and know how our code was deploying and what our bug fixes look like and how long our tests took. Um, or we can use other products and get that data. But having that data is crucial. Um, but you don't want to take down the, the quality of the code by enforcing quantity to your developers or your infrastructure teams. And that's definitely a fine balance. But you use those metrics to keep making those changes. And and a lot of times, you know, when, when we found our three-week cycle and, and even when we refine our teams and how our teams work, when we look at the metrics after each cycle, after each sprint, we can go, right, why did you have more bugs this time around or what, you know, what what happened? Um, there could be reasons. There could be technical blockers. And that's OK. Um, maybe you have a big backlog and that's OK. Why is there a big backlog? Oh, there's an outage here. There's a technical issue here. So it's it's addressing the issues each time and getting that quality improved over each cycle and not worrying about how much they're deploying. I mean, you know, so many times we see customers that are like, yep, twice a year we, we update everything and then everything breaks and everyone's on call and. It's a painful process. They try to document it, and it's just ugly, right? They push everything yeah. twice a year. Um, so then saying to a customer, what if you push things, you know, X amount of times a day? And they're like, what? You know, it's it's, but it's, you don't, you don't just go from A to Z in about half a second. You, you yeah. take about a few thousand steps there. So it's really about using those metrics and getting that data and, and using it for something beneficial in the organization and not just, saying, right, you will do this tomorrow and we're going to measure it. it it's that's that's counterproductive to the culture as well. Mm. Yeah, com- completely agree. And, you, you know, thinking of teams, um, I want to move on to talk about teams uh, a little bit. And um, I can't remember if it was in a book by uh, Jeff Bezos or Andy Jassy of AWS, but I saw a statement once that said, you know, all of their teams are based on the two pizza methodology where you never buy more than two pizzas to feed that team. And as soon as you need to buy a third pizza to feed that team, then you've split them off into another team. Um, mm-hmm. So that they work on that principle. So how, you know, Microsoft's obviously, you know, 
compromised the loads of product teams working on any number of different things, even within, you know, such a massive product uh, as I share. There's teams working on, you know, compute, storage, uh, you know, various different services. So how, how are product teams structured within, you know, Microsoft generally and how, how large do those teams often get before they're broken up into something else? So, the way it's all, I'll start this from a really high level. So we basically have on every product team, we have a division of teams. So we'll have, so we'll have kind of the exec level of, of each kind of product group and, and subset of technology, if that makes sense. Um, and then in each team, we have a program manager. Mm-hmm. Uh, so with we, it kind of like flows down. So within the Azure DevOps side, I don't know the exact numbers. We had about 50 teams, um, building and deploying to Azure DevOps, just that product alone. Mm-hmm. Um, and each of those teams was divided up into a program manager, and that program manager was responsible to make sure we we're building the, the right thing. Okay, so that's great. And then you had your actual team of engineers, and now everyone was an engineer. Um, and there were about eight engineers on that feature team, and they were responsible for making sure that whatever products that they built were fast, they're reliable, uh, engineered, they had high quality, and they met the customer needs. So that was each team. And then within each of those engineers, um, they were all co-located. So we put them all literally in a room. So there's there's quite a few teams in Redmond um, and other various parts of the world as well. We have a follow the sun model for a lot of our teams. So we've literally placed them together so you don't have an asynchronous work team, um, which is difficult in today's environment, but these people are still gonna be in those same areas just at home instead of in an office. But they do get an office. Um, each one in, the, in each person in the team will be cross-disciplined. So you don't have, you know, eight engineers that are great at, you know, one type of code or one skill set. Each person in the team will have a different skill set, and you mix and match. So you have a good balance across that team of skill sets. Um, so yeah, so each will own one feature in Azure DevOps, um, and the other product groups for the other products um, like storage, etc., are structured. Similarly, um, I don't have the numbers offhand, but this is more on kind of the Azure DevOps side because this is kind of where I work with most of the time, but all of these teams are merging into master every day. So they make a pull request. Um, they're running <laughs> these 65,000 unit tests for every single PR, and then it merges into master every single day. So they're making those changes. Um, each team has its own culture. So I work in a, in a dev crew, so I'm not quite in a product group. We feed into the product groups when we work with customer products, but we work in a team that's all around EMEA. So we are very geographically dispersed. Um, which is a very, very different culture set. So each of those teams that are going to be geolocated have their own culture. Um, they each have their own way of doing things, and they decide as a team how to manage that. So there's definitely that exec buy-in, um, and there's that ownership principle that tears down. Then each team de- decides how they want to do it. So there's one team in Redmond uh, in Building 18 that, you know, they have a thing with Nerf guns. So if they're having a bad day, they shoot each other. Um, so you'll see Nerf bullets all over the office all the time. Uh, and that's their way of kind of dealing with the stresses. And, you know, that's their team way of doing it. And that's great. So that's what their team has has chosen. So that's really, really cool. Um, so each team will own that detail. So, um, you know, we talk about these three week three week sprint cycles. Um, they will own that sprint and they'll own the plan. Um, and then they'll look ahead at the season and that would be six months looking out and then the 18 12 to 18 month plan is owned by that program manager um so each person this team will serve about 12 to 18 months in this team and they'll be given the option to go to another team for for a change in scenery Mm -hmm. or stay on that team and about 20 percent um choose another team about 80 percent stay in that team um and a lot of questions I get 
from people is, well, how about QA testing? You know, let's talk about testing. How does that happen? Microsoft got rid of QA testers. I, I don't want to say it like that. That sounds really bad. But, um, yeah, we got rid of them. Um, they create technical debt. So think of a QA tester. You build your code. You have to ship it by a certain date. You know, you have your two-week sprint. Oh, I got to get it, get it, get it. Code, you throw it over the fence. Mm-hmm. And QA has this, like, long embedded piece of code. It's a bit messy. And then they throw it back when something doesn't work, right? Or they deploy mm-hmm. it, and it's, it's, it just goes back. And it becomes this volley, volleying effect, right? And we see that with ops and devs teams. happens with QA teams. So we got rid of that QA role, and they became engineers. So if you were a QA person, you had to get um, you had to get into that role of learning code. And if you mm-hmm. wrote code, you had to learn to be QA. And and you know, you write your own code. You don't want to QA. You don't want to you don't want to look through your test your own code. You need someone else to do it. So that that does get shared. But every person's an engineer on those teams. There's no longer that mm-hmm. decisive role. Um, so that's shared across that. Um, and I think the the biggest thing too that we see customers do is they they test after the fact, and that's why we yeah. really, we kind of remove that QA thing, right? We test early from day one, um, build your code and test it immediately. You don't test it after the fact. It's it's a forethought forethought, not an afterthought. Um, we don't do any more manual testing in those teams, um, and it's it's always thinking ahead of time. How we how do we test things ahead of time? How do we implement this ahead of time? How do we get ready? And how do we address our our bugs before we get to new code? And if our backlog you know, we built this technical debt and have a huge backlog. We got to address those bugs before we look at the new code. Because um, I think we can all agree that as a as a, a user of Microsoft technologies, when something breaks, I don't want to wait three months for it to be fixed. I want it mm-hmm. fixed now. So that's been the mentality of the teams. Fix it now, uh, get through it, and then work on the new features. You know, we want reliability yeah. over a new – and new features are great, um, but they're not incentivized on new features. Mm. That's, re- that's really interesting um, insight, especially like the QA. Um, but, uh, it's, I, I don't know if you have any insights to this, but did, did remove, I mean, I guess it did, otherwise the decision may have been reversed. But I would assume because you're not rushing to get stuff done for QA testers to do their thing ultimately, that you inherently end up producing better quality code anyway because you're not rushing. You know, it's ready when it's ready, ultimately, because, you know, guys in your team are going to do the testing, ultimately. Um, Does that whole concept reduce the overall number of bugs, do you know, in the product, or does it not really have a huge effect? So I would say there's there's a couple factors. First thing is the the engineers are all taking ownership because they Mm -hmm. own that sprint cycle, um, because they own the features and they know the plan three sprints out. They own that. That team owns that. Like that's their baby. They have to, you know, feed and water it. Yeah. They know exactly what they're trying to achieve the next three to six months. I'm sorry, three three sprint cycles. So nine weeks to, to six months. They know what's coming down the pipeline, um, and they have more of an own ownership. So that's that's probably a the first thing is when when you own something, it doesn't matter what it is. You feel that personal attachment. You start mm-hmm. to really love that little code baby, right? You want it, you want it to be perfect and you want to take the time and energy into it. And because you own it, there's definitely a sense of pride about what you're, what you're doing. So I think that's one aspect of it. Um, because we're testing a lot earlier, um, and we changed our tests from functional tests to more unit tests. Functional tests take a long time. It's great. They have their place, but to run that many functional tests, um, to run unit tests earlier on and check the, the quality of our code, from the get-go was was really crucial. Um, so it wasn't so much as 
taking away someone's role, but adding a new way to do it and, and enveloping that into mix. You own your code, you get it tested, has to pass all your tests. So if, if you do a PR in the Azure DevOps team, uh, you have 65,000 unit tests to run through. Again, it takes about seven minutes. So if you fail one of those tests, you have to go back and fix one <laughs> yeah. test out of those 65,000. 65, so it's, yeah. So it's the quality of that PR is much higher um, because that ownership, I think. Um, mm. And I know we probably have hard metrics somewhere at Microsoft about how this has happened. I mean, I know we do. I mean, I know there are, we have some graphs of what our technical debt used to look like, and it was massive spikes, right? We yeah. You'd look at several sprint cycles, and we'd have these massive spikes of technical debt. Now it's like a little cute little wave that does this, you know? Oh, yeah. um, so we, we build down technical debt, and we, it, it pretty much is a small, small sine wave, right? Um, yeah. And that's what that's what you really want to achieve. And that's what that has kind of resulted in. Um, so, you know, I don't want to make QA people fear their, fear their jobs, <laughs> but, um, but yeah, I think we found a way to make them engineers to make them better and to make them understand the process better as well. I think, but that's DevOps. Like if you and I kind of have been in both sides of the fence, we get yeah. the pain points. If you don't work in someone else's shoes, you don't always get it. You don't always see their pain points. Like, why is this so difficult? Um, I've actually worked with project managers that have sat in a room with us and understood the problem, you know, and, and, and as a project manager who was like, why is this not done? Why is this not delivered? And you're like, chill out. We got this, this, and this. They were able to grasp it and live it and breathe it. Um, and that makes a huge difference. Yeah, definitely. And, uh, yeah, I want to touch on, on culture again because, it, you know, it's, I think I think out of everything in DevOps, it's one of the things that I you know feel most strongly about. I guess in terms of you know getting people to embrace DevOps and and having it be successful in their organization, I think it's one of the things that's the most important. And, and I really liked what you said um, in there a little bit earlier around those teams almost having their own culture. Uh, and I think that's one thing that most organizations are probably actually quite scared of because, uh, you know, most, most organizations, especially the larger ones, would like people to, you know, follow certain sets of, of guidance and, you know, various different ways to do things. But, you know, there's, uh, maybe this is something that you could, could add a bit more to, but like, from my perspective, that's not really what it's about because Microsoft still has like code of conduct policy oh, yeah. to follow, you know, all we of still this have kind rules. of stuff. It's, exactly. it's not the wild, wild west. No, we still but, have a lot of rules. You know, you know culture, uh, and that culture could, you know, because that, cause that culture is left to that sub team effectively to be how they need it to be for them to work in the best way. That works really well because people, like you say, sometimes people um, move teams to go do something else. You know, if someone new comes in, that changes the dynamic of the team. That sometimes their culture needs to change, and, and people shouldn't be afraid to do that if that's the right thing to carry on mm-hmm. getting results. And I often think that some organisations are, you know, sometimes trying to make that culture message one single unified thing from the top and that only works up to a certain size organization and beyond that that message probably dilutes Mm -hmm. so is that is that something that the the way culture is done within the teams is that something that was done from the outset or is that something that is you know evolved over time it's definitely evolved so i know i know satya coming in set the tone without question Mm -hmm. um i don't know if there was a, 
an outpouring of people, but with any change in any organization, an acquisition, change mm -hmm. of leadership, there's always flux. You know, people leave, people come in. Um, they restructure the org. So one thing Microsoft is really good at is restructuring the organization. So um, I was restructured last year um, in my old role, and it changed completely. But Microsoft from the top down changed it. So it definitely does come from the top down and it's kind of delivered like Microsoft Corp. And then, you know, we're in the UK sub and then the managers hear it and it flows down. So there's definitely messages from the top down. Each manager that I've ever worked for at Microsoft has had their own culture, especially in the team. So when I joined my team last year, um, I was really nervous. I was walking to a team of guys but that's my usual is working in a male dominated environment. Um, they spoke different languages. So everyone in the team, English is, is their second language, except for my manager, who's Canadian, uh, but he's multilingual. So uh, my team sits all over Mia. Um, and there is, you know, a new person. My technical skill sets were different than theirs. I was nervous. I wasn't going to be good enough. And I was really nervous what my team's going to be like, are they going to like me? Um, and that was really tough. That was really tough. Um, but my manager has a very, come, let's have steak and red wine dinners and let's come together. And his management style is very friendly and open. And he fosters that openness. And all the managers at Microsoft I've ever had foster openness, which I think is critical. Um, and when I joined my team, like because of a little bit, of cult, there, there are different cultures in our team, languages. Is, it's, 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 it's definitely that like pot of can we throw anything else in to make it, you know, Interesting. Um, but it, 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 I brought in a different skill set, but I complemented theirs. And we all became a really solid team in the past nine months that we've worked together. Um, we studied culture together as well. Mm -hmm. um, that's always encouraged. Our manager gets a little bit of a um, I don't want to use the word budget. But yeah, like we got he he basically bought us all books um, on about culture that we read as a team to grow together as a team. We, we can mm -hmm. do team activities occasionally. So while we're geographically dispersed, we would come together at a customer site or we would do a hack together, um, supporting customers, et cetera. So we did stuff together as a team um, and we really built together as a team. And, and it's it's tough because you take, you know, six very different people, um, but we had very open and honest conversations, anything from political conversations to technical conversations, you know, we threw it all in there and, I would say every single manager I've had has fostered an open environment at Microsoft. Um, I I actually haven't had a bad manager yet. Mm -hmm. um, I definitely have my favorites, but mm -hmm. um, I've had some amazing managers. And again, I think that just really comes from the top down and giving your team that trust. Um, you know, Satya has a, a phrase. Oh, I don't know if it's Satya. He always talks about it, but Microsoft runs on trust. Um, mm -hmm. And that goes from everything from our cloud to how it treats us people. Like we trust you to do your job, yeah. find the way that works best for you. And that is definitely a top down message, but every team I've ever worked on has had that, you know, what, what's your working style? What, what's your culture? Like what's your background? You know, that very, I don't want to say personal relationships, but very open relationships with my managers and, and how we like to work as a team. And as a team, we got to set up that, especially my current team now, my dev crew, we got to set up how we work together. Like we set our own ground rules as a team. And that's important because our managers, one and two levels above us, respected that. Mm -hmm. um, we didn't throw anything that was like too off the wall, but we had our own team culture and we kind of set our ground rules, how we work as a team. Um, and the management respected that because that's that's what it's about. And that's 
it's it's a bit of trust from the leadership and it's tough in a lot of organizations you don't always get that and i've been there i've been in organizations that don't trust you um and i think you know i with my personality personally when people put a box around me and say you must do this and here's your box and i'm like mm-hmm. Mm-mm. it just you fight it um internally or externally and it's it just doesn't sit well you know um and actually that's that's what happened when i worked when you and i worked at the same company mm-hmm. <laughs> at different mm-hmm. times yeah. um they they gave us a box and said, this is your box. You must fit in it. And I'm going, but I can't be creative. I can't do, I didn't feel I was always doing the right thing at the right time. Um, and it just, it just didn't fit me. And um, that was a cultural change that happened that I, I just didn't love. So coming to an organization where it's like, we decide how we work as a team and we agree together and we hold that and that that's respected. Um, mm-hmm. We don't have Nerf guns in our team. Um <laughs> But usually, you know, it's it. We usually have a team meal and um, great conversation. Um, sometimes whiskey, <laughs> but you know, we we had some really good working ways as a team. We had our you know our agreed daily standups as a team. Um, the way we code, the way we work together, and we all had to take each other's styles and and work with that. And that's really important, especially because there isn't a team I've ever worked on where everyone comes from the same background. You know, yeah. technical background, personal background, it makes up who we are. So having that open environment is is massive. Mm. That makes a more production, more productive team. Yeah, definitely. I think you know, so, so from a uh, from a customer and a partner perspective of of Microsoft, you know, I think personally, I I think the the result of this, that you know, the value that is now. It's like I, I'm I'm a massive user of of Microsoft and I've been for a long time and. You know, I, I love how that uh, that product has just gone north in terms of what it provides, features, functionality. You know, even on my blog, I'm doing a what's turning out to be quite a long-running actually DevOps 101 series. That, you know, it's not meant to be a deep dive, but it's meant to you know give a you know mix of like an extension to the documentation. The documentation tells you how to use it. I you know go into some of the lesser known features but can try and keep it high level so people you know can just read it lightly and, and get on and think ah oh, that's pretty cool mm-hmm. uh, and there is so much stuff in that product to to use it is getting to be a huge product what well, you know i digress a little bit and um, how how important do you think the whole shift to devops was for for microsoft you know for, for, Probably just from a cloud perspective, I would say, because obviously that's one of the biggest parts of the of the business now. You, you know, I, I kind of get the impression that if if this hadn't have happened, then Azure may well have been dead in the water a long time ago, potentially. Uh, and Amazon would have, you know, beaten beaten them to the ground when it comes to cloud. But you know, it feels feels like from my perspective that that this move. You know, is clearly a, it's clearly wet, but B was vitally important for Microsoft to have to do that at that specific point in time. It it was all timing, um, and it, it it absolutely came in when when the cloud started happening. I mean, you think about the products we offer in the cloud. You have M three six five, Xbox, uh, plus Azure. You know, plus all the the SaaS solutions and hosted mm-hmm. solutions we offer in the cloud. It's it's massive. I mean. We've transformed a box software company into a cloud-hosted company on yeah. on a massive scale. And the reason why I'm a big proponent of Azure DevOps is because 
when I go into customers, I'm like, yeah, we use these 12 tools. And I'm like, okay, let's go through each one. What do you do with it? And they're like, yeah, can you show me how to do this in my tool? And I'm like, no, but this is how we do it all in one tool. And this is Azure DevOps. And we can deploy yeah. it to any platform, you know, any code that you want to bring to the table. And they're like, even Java? I was like, even Java. You know, <laughs> it's it's people can't believe it. The, the, the whole change and the whole embracing of open source and it, it is that growth mindset and being open, having an open culture and, and kind of an open door policy. And one of the things that when I was working in a multi-cloud kind of situation, whether it be on-premise in a private cloud or other public clouds, it was always, well, how do I do this in another cloud? How do I do things like Active Directory? You know, they weren't inherent. They weren't – most organizations use Active Directory. Like, how do I build an AD? Microsoft's kind of like, well, it's built itself. We own it, so we're going to make it easy for you. Where It's going to be a cloud-hosted service. And it's not 100% like on-prem, but it, it – it makes life easier when you're going to the cloud. Um, but then there's a lot of times vendor lock-in. And Microsoft's been really good at saying any platform, any cloud, any code. And Azure DevOps is a great example of that. Um, when we work with customers, you know, we we really, really try to avoid lock-in in our products. Um, now, when you start going serverless and going code first, that's that's kind of a touchy subject because you're, you're deploying code, right? Um, but, you know, we don't want to lock you in with the products as such. So it's that was something that really impressed me about Azure when I was working with some other products. It was like, oh, um, if we go here, we're stuck. Like, how do we get egress out or how do we do multi-cloud scenarios? And it was always it was always really difficult. And to have that capability to bring what you know to the cloud is important. And, and Azure is growing massively. Yeah. You know, there's so many things available in the marketplace, so many software offerings, um, third-party products that you can deploy to. So you take your on-premise environment and say, well, we consume these products on-premise. What can we consume in the cloud? Um, and it's it's massive. And they've really, really embraced that. And they've made the transition to cloud easier. And as you look at customers that are looking to transform their organizations and just in so many different ways, getting to the cloud is sometimes a really big step for customers that gets them thinking about DevOps. You know, we're going to this new platform. How do we make the change? And we have the tooling, uh, which I think is fantastic. And I, you know, it's, mm. it's, it was such crucial timing and, and no one, you couldn't have written a book that well, you know, um, yeah. it, it just happened. It really just happened. Um, but I mean, you know, as organizations evolve, I think it was the perfect timing. And I think I'll be honest, like I'm super fortunate and excited to be at Microsoft right now. Like I am total, like, you know, I love my job every day. I love getting to see things change. And I think the reality is, when you go talk to organizations, they think they're so behind the curve and actually they aren't. Mm -hmm. And you have to kind of just make sure you're not. So what do you want to do? Let's make it happen and, and show them what they can do. And that really starts opening up the doors to DevOps, to new tooling, to new processes. And there's so many things out there to help them. And I think that's great. Yeah, definitely. Uh, you know, so, so, something oddly has just come into, into my mind um, and I don't know where this come from, but um, quite a funny story. Back when we did work at the same place, um, I did a user group, a DevOps user group in Birmingham. And um, I, I didn't know this until I got there, but there was not one Azure user in the room. And I was there to talk about Visual Studio Online at the time, um, which was a bit of a tough sell, I have to admit. <laughs> yeah. And there have been many times when I've looked back and think, oh, and if only I had Azure DevOps as it is today to that user group event, everything would have been fine and dandy. And I, I remember, you know, going off and presenting and how, you know, how we do stuff in a partner world and, you know, how we can help clients. And it, it kind of went all right, but 
You know, they, you could tell that people were so skeptical that you were talking about Microsoft stuff. It was, it yes. was unreal. And it's not until I went back to that user group event, um, probably a couple of years ago now, I think, maybe 18 months ago. And I, I did, you know, something slightly different. I, I talked about what's changed because a lot of the same people were going to be there. It was, you know, what I was told. And sure enough, I remembered quite a lot of faces as you do stood at the front and, it was completely different. You know, all of a sudden there was questions like, oh, I, I develop on my Mac. You know, can I still use this tool set? I was like, well, yes. <laughs> you know, oh, I do, I deploy Java. Can I do all that through? Yeah, of course you can. Yeah. Well, I don't do anything on Azure. Can I still use Azure DevOps? Yeah. <laughs> you know, it's completely irrelevant. And I think, yeah, you know, like, like you say, that open source messaging is, is huge. And I, I think, you know, I, I certainly think, you know, just to finish up on from, from my perspective, that I think the, the, the whole, the whole SATI revolution, let's say, that's happened at, at Microsoft has made Microsoft products so much better. Uh, and, and I, I don't think that's anything to do with the products themselves. I, I think it's the change in the people that work on those products and the whole, you know, transformation to DevOps that, that's happened. And seeing stuff be used more and more and in more and more different use cases, you'll get to see that um, all the time. So, I mean, it, it's probably kind of a dumb question to ask, but you, you'll probably see the same thing, right? That the, the, the whole DevOps movement has made Microsoft's products a lot better. Absolutely. I mean, I remember working on various products whose names I won't mention, and they were painful. Uh, mm-hmm. But like, you know, even when I talk about Azure DevOps and, and VSTS and we start talking about TFS, like TFS sucked. Like <laughs> I get up and I do a talk and I'm like, I'm sorry. <laughs> like I, I wasn't there, but I'm sorry. Like if you used it, I get it. It's, yeah. Um, and I think what's even better now is if you look at all the blogs, our documentation is so much better. Yeah. You can give direct feedback to the product groups. You can get involved on the Yammer sites. Um, you can post up in TechNet. Like, there's so many different places in which to reach out, and people respond. Like, it's not – that changed with the culture as well. Like, I remember having outages and having server issues, exchange issues, God knows what else, probably SharePoint issues in my environments. And I had to call someone in probably India and get on the call, and then you have an SLA, and they call you back. And, and you know, it was just like, well, why doesn't it do this? And they're like, well, we, this is like a limit of a product. And you, you're, you're speaking to someone who's supposed to help you with something, but you never felt like you had help. And I remember those days. I remember those at three in the morning shouting about exchange server being down. <laughs> yeah. Like, I, I won't deny it. Poor person on the other end of the phone was like, she's having a bad day. I'm like, yes, I am. Yeah. But that was, you know, now it's like we, we still have support. Our support teams are amazing. But you can give that feedback. And we have so many people contributing. And Microsoft's one of the largest contributors to the open source community. I don't have the metrics on me at the, at the moment. But uh, like CNCF, et cetera, we, we were one of the largest contributors. And that's massive. Like we contribute and we take the feedback. And I think that's part of the thing with the growth mindset as well. Like you as a human, small person in the team have to take feedback and be open to that and say, how do I do better next time? And that's the DevOps mindset in that growth mindset. And then we as a company have to take feedback on our products and say, you're right. This feature sucks. Let's make it better. And, and we're constantly trying to put in fixes 
instead of always putting out features because we, we know when there's problems and you can put in a bug report. You can put in, you know, put in issues all the time. And, you know, I, it's great. We have, we have actually almost turned into an, an open source mindset as well with this whole transformation. Like, yes, mm-hmm. give us feedback. Let us, and, and as a culture, we take that feedback. I mean, I, I would say again, every manager I've had gives me feedback and I've been able to say to my manager, you know, maybe this isn't working for me or let's talk about something and they're open to it. Everyone in the company knows that. Now, I'm sure there's probably some outliers in that, but every person I've interacted with, they're like, hey, can I have some feedback? We have feedback mechanisms within the company as well of how we're performing. And, and you can go to your colleagues and say, how did we work together on this project? Can I have feedback from our manager? And they fill out like a fee- we have a feedback tool. So there, it's a constant stream of feedback in Microsoft. And that really plays into that DevOps mindset and the DevOps lifecycle. Um, and it, it's everywhere. It's everywhere. I mean, you know, 10 years ago, when would you have given feedback on a product? Yeah. Yeah. I no, wouldn't have. <laughs> I would have just screamed yeah. at something for not working and had the poor support person on the other line, the phone, on the other end of the phone when I was, you know, three in the morning trying to get a server up or AD crashed or whatever, you know, like yeah. it, it's massively changed. And, you know, I, I almost think the new generation won't understand our pain. <laughs> no. uh, so, yeah, I think it, it's 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 great. It's absolutely great. It, it is. And, and I, I, I'll be honest, until you mentioned it there, I've not really thought about that massive difference in, you know, careers for people just coming into tech who in five, ten years time will look back and when they started and thought like, it was pretty good when we started. Now it's even better. And, you know, we're going to be at the end of our desks in our wheelchairs at some point thinking, I remember when mail stores used to disconnect in exchange for no reason at all. I remember when in exchange 5.5, you had to build a brand new server to recover one mailbox. Uh, and, and they're going to look at you as if you, you know, you're crazy and you don't know what you're talking about. But this is, you know, te- technology, you know, for that one reason, technology is an amazing industry to, to work in, right? And we, we both love what we do and love our jobs. And yeah, it's, it's fantastic that, you know, we can do stuff like this. And, you know, I can guarantee in a year's time, you know, if I, if I, you know, listen back to this in a year's time, there's going to be some stuff that we've talked about today that will just not be relevant next year and will be so much better. Uh, and, you know, I personally think it's a privilege to, to work in an environment like that. I don't think there's many other industries that, uh, you know, have this high rate of uh, change and learning that we, we do in technology. So it's, it's really great to be part of it and really great to be, you know, part of that um, movement. Um so we've actually unfortunately run out of time. Um, I'm pretty sure we could go on for a lot. <laughs> Hours. Yeah. Hours. I think we have <laughs> before. I think we have before. Yeah, we definitely have before. Um, yeah, let me just call you quickly for half an hour and two hours later. Um, <laughs> it's <laughs> yeah. a quick one. Five minutes. Five minutes. Yeah. <laughs> um, so, yeah, I, I used to say thanks very much for giving up some of your uh, time to talk to me about this. I, I know... So it's absolutely something I've been interested in learning more about it for, for you know a long a long time, and it's good to know the stuff I tell people is not complete rubbish if nothing else. Um, so yeah, thanks very much for uh, giving up some of your time. Awesome, Martin. Thank you for having me. It's been great. Yeah, no problem at all. And uh, thank you again, everyone, for for listening. Hope you found this useful. Uh, next week, episode eleven, uh, we are following up um, with, with a point that we actually talked about in this episode, which was 
the, you know, your DevOps journey has to start from the top. So we're going to be talking about how you convince CX level people to be on board with your uh, DevOps journey and your transformation. So uh, that should be a really good conversation. Again, very much looking forward to that one. Um, so, yeah, again, thank you, everyone, for listening. Uh, don't forget, if anyone's got any feedback, uh, feel free to reach out to me on uh, Twitter, comment on the blog, uh, or find me on LinkedIn, any of the usual social media places. But until next time, thank you everyone again and goodbye.